Well, I'm excited this evening because we are diving back into John's Gospel. Now, if you are just visiting with us for the first or second time this evening, or maybe you just started coming here around the Advent season, you're saying, diving back into John, what are you talking about? Well, actually, most of 2009, we've been spending in John's Gospel. We've gone from the first chapter all the way through the 10th chapter, and uh, we took a, a break over the summer from John, and we took a break during the Advent season, but starting today, we're getting back into John, beginning in chapter 11, which I, I begin, uh, it's on page 735 of your Pew Bible, if uh, you'd like to follow along when, once we get there. Uh, just a, a side note, I haven't been mentioning this well, but your pew Bibles are gift Bibles. So if you've come and you don't have a Bible, take that home. You're not stealing, I promise. We bought extra so that you could take those home if you want. Mark them up, whatever you want to do. So, John chapter 11. Very, very important chapter as opposed to the unimportant chapters, right? No. But this one is a transition chapter in John's Gospel. Uh, be, not, not just because it, it, it contains one of the most amazing stories in Jesus' ministry, but because the focus is going to shift in John 11 from Jesus doing a bunch of signs and wonders to Jesus revealing the glory of God. And I'll, I'll explain that later today and, and as the weeks go by. In John's Gospel, Jesus performs seven signs. Up to this point, up through the first ten chapters, we've seen six of those signs. Jesus turns water to wine. He cleanses the temple. He heals a nobleman's son. He heals a crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. He feeds over 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. And he heals a man who had been born blind from birth. Now, like any signs, from street signs to stop signs, Jesus' signs point to a reality greater than the sign itself. So, for example, you go up to a stop sign, and it's a piece of metal with red paint on it, and it says stop. That's the sign. But the sign points to a much greater reality, doesn't it? So if you ignore the stop sign and then get T-boned by a semi, you realize, oh, the sign was pointing to something greater, something real. The same thing is true of Jesus' signs that he's performing in John's Gospel. His signs point to the reality that Jesus is the Son of God, sent from God, and with his coming... So comes the beginning of the kingdom of God. Jesus' signs point to the fact that he is the Son of God, sent from God, and with him comes the kingdom of God. Now, John, the guy who wrote this account of Jesus' life, he tells us that he wrote these things down for one main purpose. That you and I, and everyone who reads it, would believe or trust that Jesus forgives us and offers us new life, eternal life. This evening, we're going to cover the first 27 verses of John chapter 11. Again, it's on page 735, and I just want to ask you to stand one more time. Well, probably I'll ask you to stand more than that, but just stand with me as we read this part of the gospel. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word out to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not going to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to the, his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. 
Now the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of the world. But anyone who walks in the night, well, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, he who comes into the world. Lord, would you open our hearts. Help us to receive your word, not in our heads, but that it might change us, that we might trust more fully in you, the resurrection and the life. Amen. You may be seated. So in the first three verses, we learn a little bit about the occasion for the story, some of the main characters. We see Lazarus, the sick man, who has two sisters, Mary and Martha, and Jesus. We learn that Jesus, or Lazarus is not only sick, but that Jesus loved him. This is a very important detail, and if you have your Bible with you, and you're not against marking in it, I would really underline that, that, that line that Jesus loved him. Well, Jesus heard the news that Lazarus was sick, and he says, well, this sickness is not to end in death, but to the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified by it. Notice what he says next, what John tells us. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. The statement about sickness not ending in death, but ending in the glory of God and the glory of the Son is bracketed on either side with overt reminders that Jesus loved this family from Bethany. He loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We must remember as we move forward from here on out that Jesus is motivated by love and motivated by the glory of God. We need to remember this love motivation because what's about to happen in the story is not at all what we would expect. So, when he heard the news that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? Up to this point in John's Gospel, we have seen Jesus do amazing things. We have seen Jesus heal the unhealable diseases of the world. We've even seen him heal uh, the nobleman's son at a distance. He didn't even have to be in the same town. He just says the word and it happens. So what is going on here? 
Let me flesh this out a bit, a bit more, so you can see how astounding this situation really is. From the other gospel accounts and, and other parts of John's gospel, we can imply that Mary and Martha were not married. They did not have husbands. Which means that their brother Lazarus was their paterfamilias. He was their main source of income in their culture. He was their guardian, if you will. The family had money. But if Lazarus were to die, that money would probably go to the next living male relative. Now, we don't know if they had another brother. It would maybe go to a cousin or something, something like that. Maybe this man who got the money wouldn't care for Mary and Martha the same degree that their own brother Lazarus would. So they're not only at risk of losing a brother, that would be bad enough. But they're losing the, their provider, their very life as they know it. Also, from the geography, we can imply that Jesus is only a day's travel away from where Lazarus was. If he left immediately, Lazarus would have probably still died. But at least Jesus would have made it for the funeral. In this culture, if you are a friend and somebody in your friend's family dies or a friend dies, you drop everything. You don't say, well, I've got a busy work week, I've got to miss this one. You drop what you're doing, you travel to where that funeral is going to be, and you help make the arrangements. You help mourn, you help cook, you take care of your friends. It's just expected in this culture. So by Jesus waiting two days to come, he's going to miss the main part of the funeral where they put Lazarus in the tomb. And this would have caused great shame on Mary and Martha that their rabbi didn't come. Heavy, right? What do you think Mary and Martha were thinking? How do you think they were feeling? Do you think they felt ignored? Do you think they felt angry? Do you think they felt alone? Maybe they felt a little bit of all of that. We all have, haven't we? Have you ever, and I understand that this question is ridiculous, but have you ever had a difficult circumstance and you were crying out to God to do something and all you think you hear is silence? You've been crying out to God for maybe clarity and a decision you need to make, for answers in a difficult situation, for healing, and you hear nothing. I know for many of you right now, that question is more of a reality than you'd like it to be. Some of you are experiencing grave illnesses in your family, confusion over future decisions. You're trying to sell your house with no avail and other circumstances. God, what are you up to? Why are you silent? You know, when I need a break from studying, I'm in my office, I can spin my chair around to this bookshelf over here, and I've got this great little book. It's Children's Letters to God. And it usually just makes me laugh. It breaks up the day. Here's a couple. Dear God, is it true my father won't get into heaven if he uses his bowling language? From Anita. Dear God, who draws the lines around the countries? From Nan. Here's one that speaks to our present passage. In Sunday school, they told us what you do, God. Who does it when you're on vacation? From Jane. Cute, right? I mean, God doesn't really take days off, right? He doesn't take vacation days. Well, you could have fooled me sometimes. When you're in the midst of darkness and you're trying your best to trust and all you get is silence. I mean, don't sometimes you wish God would give you an out-of-the-office reply like on your email? At least you'd know he'd be back on January 11th or something like that if he's not answering his emails today. That would be better sometimes than silence, wouldn't it? Let's step back from the story for just a moment and try and see what it's teaching us. We learn that all of this is about God's glory and the glory of the Son of God. Now it might seem a little bit callous that Jesus would allow this to happen to Lazarus and his sisters just to make a point or to reveal his own glory. 
But it's hard for me to believe that Jesus is insensitive when he's already in these few short verses. It says that he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus over and over. We get the point, John. Jesus loved this family dearly. So I don't think the message here is, suck it up. Your suffering is just a necessary byproduct of God's glory being revealed. No, Jesus himself weeps over our pain and suffering. He weeps over the pain and suffering that Mary and Martha are undergoing right now. I think the other difficulty in understanding this passage is that word glory. This is for God's glory to be revealed. I think in our culture, the word glory connotes something less than positive. For example, Terrell Owens, the football player, or Ocho Cinco, these football players, I mean, what they do is for their own glory, right? In our culture, we kind of use that word glory, and it's really glory equals attention, doesn't it? Or in our celebrity kind of pecking order, celebrities are often doing crazy things so that they can get more glory. And all that means is fame, or attention, or 15 minutes of, uh, of a TV spot. But in the biblical sense, glory is a much different word. God revealing His glory is not to bolster His popularity. God's glory is what makes God God. It's His Godness. It's God revealed as He truly is. Now Moses, one of God's best friends and most famous servants, he could have asked God for anything. You know what he asks? To see God's glory. Another famous servant and friend of God, King David, asked in the Psalms to see God's glory. Frankly, we need to be exposed to God's glory more than we need anything else, I think. We need to see the weight of who God really is. In fact, you remember the summer when we covered the Lord's Prayer. The first line in the Lord's Prayer is, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know what that means? Holify your name. Let your name be made famous throughout the world. Let your name, the weight of your name, the what makes you godness, make that known around the world and in my heart. I love that prayer because it starts off with the focus on God and not me. Because when I pray myself, it's all about God fix this, do this, do this for me. Jesus starts us off on the right foot because he understands that what we need more than anything is to experience God's glory. Jesus is motivated by love. He could have done a good thing. He could have done a good thing and healed Lazarus. But you know what he did? He chose the best thing. He chose his best thing and that was to reveal his glory that people might believe. I'm going to ask Patrick McAvoy to come forward and share a story with you that has to do with confusing circumstances. When you wish God would act one way, and He acts another way, and you end up seeing His glory more than you thought. So Chris asked me to come tell a 45-minute story in five minutes. So, uh, so the first 40 minutes, I guess, uh, I can sum up by saying it. Uh, basically, I... Uh, Went to Guatemala. I took a bus from Mexico City to Guatemala. It was about 30 hours. And um, I did it all by myself. I went to go meet some friends who were going to fly down there. And the, the whole journey was an unbelievable... It was like hanging out with God the whole time. I mean, not, I'm not talking about just like it was fun or it was exciting. It was like no matter what it was, God would show up. And it would just blow my mind over and over and over again. And so the part of the story we were arriving at is I'm leaving. I'm getting to the bus station in Guatemala City to head home. I have uh, no money. 
and um, I've just enough for the, I hope I have enough for the bus to get home. And I show up at the bus station and, um, and at 9.30 in the morning and um, the bus arrives, you know, it's a six hour bus ride to the border. Um, so I show up at 9.30 and I'm like, one ticket for the, you know, 10 o'clock bus please. And I'm like, oh, sorry, you mean the seven o'clock bus, our things are off, the next one's at six. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, okay, so uh, six o'clock, that's not great, but okay. And so I sit down and I start to think about what this means. And it may not mean anything, at f it didn't mean anything at first, but as I start to think about it, I'm like, uh, I don't have any money, so I can't, I'm gonna get into the border about midnight. So I'm sleeping in a border town on the street. Uh, that's what that is going to imply. And I have no money and um, I start looking through my passport and I realize another situation that I had not uh, dealt with yet, and that is that I did not have a stamp from Guatemala in my passport. I had got through the border somehow on the bus without getting the stamp, and I knew that was going to be a problem too. And, um, and it, I, I, I mean, without really going into it, it's really hard for me to explain just, it was like hanging out with somebody and then them just ditching you. It was just like God was there and then he was gone. And I was just, I was tipped. I don't think I've ever been so mad. And I, I was just like, you you were so faithful. What happened? Like, where did you go? Why? Do, I don't have money. I don't have time. I mean, if the bus station is a Greyhound station, and you can imagine, you know, most Greyhound stations where they are, but imagine Guatemala City. You know, it's also in the worst part of town. So, I mean, just, I was afraid to even walk out the doors. I was the only person there. And, uh, and so I didn't have anything with me. I had, you know, a, a watch and three sets of clothes and two books, which one had I already read, and the other one was Mere Christianity, which I was not going to open at that point in time. <laughs> and so I was like, you know, I was just sitting there, and I had whatever, you know, eight hours just to sit there and do nothing, and I'm just ticked as can be, and I'm just wondering, like, what is going on? Like, why, where is your faithfulness now? Why were you so great for, you know, this whole time, and suddenly you're just gone? And so I started to write, and I can't think of anything to write, and I did have a pen and paper, too, and... Uh, and so I'm like, fine. So I pick up the stupid book and I start reading through it. And sure enough, like, it's like the, some of the first things I see are, you know, um, uh, how can you be, uh, God puts you in tough situations to teach you things. Like, how can you be a patient person if he doesn't put you in situations where you have to use that patience? Or how do you have more faith if he doesn't put you in a situation where you have to, you know, use that faith to grow that? I mean, it's like, and, and these are th not things I want to hear right now, you know, just like, come on, give me a break. And so, and this is, I heard, okay, so God talked to me twice, and not audibly, but not, not just like feeling it, like, he's, he goes, go, get out of here. I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. I'm terrified. I don't have a clue where I am. I'm in the middle of, you know, he's like, just go, just don't even worry about it. And I mean, he didn't say all that. All he said was go. The rest of it is, you know, my interpretation. So I'm like, fine, screw it, I'll go. And so I grabbed my backpack, and I walked out. And uh, I just started walking. It did not get any better. And there's policemen who, if you've been to Latin America, it's not any better than criminals. So you're also frightened. And like, and I'm just there's lot, there's I mean, obvious drug deals taking place within view. And and I just keep going. I'm just like, no, I don't know. Just keep walking. And uh, I get like three or four blocks down and turn the corner. It's like. I'm in downtown somewhere, and there's a Burger King right there, and so I walk in, and I don't have any money, like I said, so I just sit down. And, uh, and so I just keep reading, and uh, I, there was lots of pretty amazing things I read, and hit me real hard, but they're irrelevant to this point of the story. Um, so as I'm leaving, finally, I, you know, I, I sat there for four hours, and no one ever said anything to me, and so it's about a half hour before I'm supposed to leave, and the second time God spoke to me, this is the only time he's ever said anything to me in my life, he goes, get 200 quetzales out of that ATM, which was extremely bizarre. 
right? I mean, if you want God to say something to you, that's not really the one I wanted. And I didn't, I didn't have it. I mean, I, you know, this was before, uh, you know, like put your debit card where your bank would cover you beyond a certain amount. No, I only had what I had. And so I'm like, that is weird. And so I said, okay, fine. And so I went and I got it out, which was like 30 bucks, which, yeah, which was the money I needed to get on the bus. The next bus, let's see if I've, have I explained this right. So it's from where I'm at to the border, six hours, and then another 24-hour bus ride to Mexico City. So I'm like, okay. So I go back down, I get on the bus, the bus is packed, and we're driving up, and I get to the border, and I get out, and I kind of see what's happened. There's, it's a little bit different. The border, uh, you like, you check out of Guatemala, and then you check into Mexico, as opposed to just having one thing to go through. So I'm like, oh, that makes sense. I missed the second step as I came down. And so I walk up. I'm in the first one. There's a bunch of people behind me. And I walk up, and I put my passport down. I just don't say anything. And the guy flips through it, and he's like, where's your stamp? And I'm like, I don't know. And he goes, well, you don't have a stamp? And I'm like, you know, it's kind of a long story, and he's like, "Please come inside." And I'm like, "Oh!" So luckily, the the Guatemala—you <laughs> get a kick if you saw this—but the Guatemala uh, border security is like a like a portable, like they have a walk-in, like it's about as big as it is. And so there's three windows, and I walk inside. And luckily, like inside is like right behind the window, so everyone's you know outside is looking in at me, and so I don't I don't feel totally intimidated. And so the border patrol comes over, and he, there's three or four guys there, and he goes. Um, he goes, now, uh, you know, you're in the country illegally. And I'm like, I know, I know, I can explain it. I didn't understand, it didn't make any sense. I tried to go through here, it's really confusing. It's not like anything I've ever done before. And he's like, well, you know, if the, if your, if your, the door to your house is open, that doesn't just mean I can walk in. I'm like, yeah, thanks, I appreciate that. <laughs> yes, I'm really sorry. And so he's like, we're gonna, so what's gonna happen now is we're gonna deport you. And I'm like, oh God. That does not sound like a lot of fun. And I'm like, you know, I, and I know, I know I can say, you know, the magic words, the, isn't there any other way I can help pay for something around here, you know? But I don't. I'm just like, yeah, whatever. I'm, you know, at this point in time, I'm just running on it. And, uh, and, the, and the guy keeps talking for a while, and he's like, or you can pay the fine. And I'm like, I, really, I don't have anything. I mean, I don't have much. And he's like, the fine's 200 quetzales. I'm like, no way. Boom, there, yeah, and I'm fired up. I'm just like, yes, <laughs> stamps my thing, and I go out there, and I go across the border, and the, there's a $20 fee for the, um, the Mexican visa, which I don't have. I don't have any cash. I don't have my debit card, which they don't take, of course. And for some reason, whatever that reason is, they don't even charge me, and I, I'm not asking questions, but I'm just filled out my paperwork and hand it to them, and they said, go ahead, get on your way. I mean, the scary thing about this is that bus, I mean, if you're, the border crossing is in the middle of nowhere. There's not a lot of people crossing there. And the bus, they wait 15 minutes. They tell you, we wait 15 minutes, and then we're gone. There's nothing we can do about it. We can't wait. So, you know, I'm sprinting across, get there, and uh, jump on the bus. And I'm just so fired up. And I get on the bus, and as we're heading up, you know, I'm still with the daunting task of sleeping on the streets in some town. And, uh, you know, it's way past when the last bus would have left. And, like, we're five minutes away. I can kind of see us pulling into town. And the bus driver, I've never, ever seen this. I've read tons of buses. I've never seen this in Mexico before. He gets on the radio, and he's like, uh, one bus just radioed me and said, though, wait, if we have anybody that wants to go to Mexico City, there's four seats left. And I'm like... I'm not even going to raise my hand. Let's see what happens. And, and, uh, and two other people raised their hand. I'm just like, yes, I'm three, I'm three. And, uh, and I got to Mexico City. I actually had to, um, I found, a, I 
somehow ran into a, I got to Mexico City where I had a friend. They called another friend because I didn't have any money. Uh, I checked my account, I had $3. And uh, they called another friend to come pick me up from the town that I was at. And uh, anyway, uh, that's. <laughs> <laughs> So I wouldn't complain if God said to go to the ATM. That's pretty cool. From our perspective, God often works slowly, strangely, and indirectly. But he always has our best interest in mind. This is the God who takes our brokenness and turns it into beauty. And with the Apostle Paul, we can hold fast to the promise that God works all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Let's get back to our story. After two days, Jesus tells his disciples it's time to head to Judea. Bethany of Judea is where Lazarus is entombed and where Mary and Martha live. It's also only two miles from Jerusalem, where a mob had tried to kill him for claiming to be the Son of God not long ago. His disciples were afraid to go back. And what they didn't understand is that Jesus must die. And this is where we begin to see a glimpse of his glory. And here's a big spoiler alert for next week, but uh, you might forget it anyway. Spoiler alert. If Jesus did the easy thing and healed Jesus from a distance, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they would have been happy. They probably would have trusted Jesus a little bit more even than they did before. But healing Lazarus would have not have ruffled the, the feathers of the authorities. Probably would have gone under the radar. After all, Jesus wouldn't have even had to gone to Judea. But by allowing Lazarus to die and then bringing him back to life, it produced greater faith in Jesus for, for the crowds and witnesses. And that would be the reason that the authorities then sought to kill Jesus in an organized way. Jesus did the best thing for Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and it cost him the most. When Jesus explains his resolution to walk into danger, one of his disciples, Thomas, says, let's go too, so that we can die with him. Now, Thomas didn't really understand what he was saying. And in fact, as you know, by the time Jesus was crucified, his disciples all deserted him. But we live on the other side of the resurrection. We know the rest of the story that Thomas didn't know, that Jesus gave his life to save us all. As his body, the church... We're called to do the same thing, to give our lives. We're called to trust Him, which means laying down our lives and our agendas and our plans where they might conflict with His. Patrick had certain ideas of how things would go, and I, I'm sure of that, uh, but he trusted in God's plans, and a way was provided for him. And I think Patrick's faith, as you can tell, is much greater today than, his, than if everything would have just gone smoothly and he wouldn't have had to trust. So finally, Jesus nears Bethany. Lazarus has been dead now for four days. And Martha, she runs out to meet him. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask God, he'll do for you. Jesus does not, does not defend himself. He doesn't say, Martha, you don't know what you're talking about. He doesn't say, don't question me. He can handle our doubts. He can handle our fears. He can handle our anger and our grief and our sadness. Read the Psalms sometime. He can handle our widest range of emotions from the greatest joy to the pits of despair. So let him know how you feel. That's allowed in church. That's allowed with God. Say it in prayer. 
Journal it. It's okay to be confused and upset and at your wit's end with what God is really doing in your life. But once you let it out, let Him in. Allow Him to show you a better way. Jesus tells Martha that Lazarus is going to rise again. And and she agrees because like most of her contemporaries in that day and age, they believed in the resurrection. That someday in the end, God would raise all the righteous back to life. What she fails to understand is that with the arrival of Jesus, the resurrection is no longer a theological topic or an abstract idea. The resurrection is Jesus. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. As we've seen in previous chapters, this is yet another of the I am statements. One of those statements in Greek that's ego eimi. And as I've said over and over again, the only person who's ever said it like that is Yahweh himself when he talks to Moses at the burning bush. By beginning his sentence with ego eimi, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus is saying that he is the embodiment of God himself. Jesus doesn't just believe in the resurrection, he's the one who initiates it. It flows out of his being. Jesus offers to turn our bios life, our fallen, bound for death, struggle to survive life, into Zoe life. Life that's redeemed, forgiven, free to love without strings attached. Life that will be resurrected. Life that will dwell in incorruptible bodies one day. How many of you have seen Man vs. Wild, the Discovery Channel show? The guy who stars in that show's name is Bear Grylls. What a cool name. That's a manly name. Yeah, this guy, he shows you how to survive. He goes to extreme places. He'll jump in an Arctic lake and be like, oh, I'm freezing. And he'll show you how to get around a fire and takes his clothes off and all that stuff. He'll go to the desert and show you how to eat weird bugs. And he goes to the tropics and does all kinds of crazy things. This year, there's a new marketing campaign out for the show. And you may not know this, but Bear Grylls is a, is a Christian. And the new marketing campaign is this. Bear Grylls doesn't just teach you how to survive. He teaches you how to live. So often I think we're like Martha, always in a hurry, wanting God to answer our questions now to help us preserve life as we know it. Our safe, controlled life. I'm the biggest offender of that. I love my control. We're like Martha in that we want Jesus to heal our ailments now, to provide that opportunity now, and to get us out of the next jam right now. But what if Jesus wanted more for us than our mere survival? What if he wanted to show us glimpses of a new life that is available through him? I'm quite certain that that's exactly what this passage tells us Jesus wants for us. That he is not on vacation. He's not silent to be mean. But he's waiting to show us something that you and I cannot even concoct in our imaginations. An outcome that is better than we could imagine. Who would have guessed, go to the ATM and get 200 of those weird dollars that I don't know about, and that's exactly how much he needs to bribe the border guards. I mean, that's awesome. Who, knows that, who knew that the death of Lazarus in this morning for four days that his sisters would go through would see the most amazing thing besides the resurrection that Lazarus has brought back to life? Who knows what he's concocting to do in your state of confusion right now, in your sorrow? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. 
and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha answered, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who comes into the world. John recorded this story so that we might be asked the same question Martha was. Do you believe this, that Jesus is the resurrection in life, that he has your best interests in mind, that he wants to reveal his glory, which is really, whether we believe it or not, what we need deep down? How do you answer today? Let us pray.